You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, well, we're finishing up uh, tonight, and actually, I don't want to say finishing up. We're actually going to take a little side journey in part of our series called A Better Covenant. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about over the last seven weeks, the blood covenant relationship that we have with the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so I want to just, uh, this is going to be an addendum or whatever you want to call it, just an attachment to that, uh, to kind of take us into a little different aspect of our relationship with the Lord in the sense of uh, our relationship with Jesus personally. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to John, the 20th chapter, and I will meet you there in a little while, John, the 20th chapter, and I want to take us on a little bit of a journey to lay some groundwork tonight. And um, I want to begin with just stating some, some facts just to lay some groundwork. Um, in Luke, the 16th chapter, and by the way, if I go too fast and you miss anything, the notes are all available for you online on the website, so you can download them there. But prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, when people in the Old Testament who believed in the covenant, lived you know, and obeyed God and did the very best that they could and loved God, when they died, uh, they could not go to the place called heaven yet. The Bible teaches us that they went to a place called paradise, and it was found in the upper regions uh, of hell or Hades, and it was not a place of torment. It was separated from that. And we see all of that uh, in Luke, the 16th chapter. Jesus told us the story about Lazarus and the rich man and how uh, the rich man uh, you know, didn't have any regard for Lazarus while he was alive. And so Jesus told us that the rich man died and he was carried over into the place of torment, over into hell. And uh, Lazarus was carried away into what was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. It's the same thing. And uh, the rich man proceeded to have a conversation with, with Abraham there. And uh, But what I want you to see is, is that people who died before Christ's resurrection were held and were taken to this place called paradise. And, you know, you've got to imagine, you know, in our minds, we're thinking, you know, believers that died you know, three, 4,000 years before Jesus showed up. Well, you know, the, the thing that you need to remember is over in eternity, there is no sense of time. So these folks weren't sitting around tapping their foot, looking at their watches, waiting on time to pass. It was just, uh, you know, a, a span of a few moments to them. So prior again, prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, when believers died, they went to this place called paradise. If you'll recall, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, uh, one of the other two thieves uh, told him, you know, the two thieves that were crucified with him, uh, told him, he said, Lord, remember me when you get to your kingdom. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, Jesus told him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, he wasn't talking about the place called heaven because Jesus was not yet going to heaven. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, you remember he, the last few moments of his life, he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that he cried out this way was because for the first time in his eternal existence, he experienced separation from God. Now, the reason that he experienced separation from God was not because he sinned, but because he took your sin and my sin upon himself and was paying the price for that sin. And so when he when that entered into its fullness, he again, for the first time in his whole eternal existence, experienced this thing called spiritual death, which is separation from God. Sp being spiritually separated from God is spiritual death. And so when Jesus breathed his last, you know, and he gave up his spirit, that he died, and he died as a man that was spiritually dead. Now, the Bible teaches us that people that are spiritually dead or spiritually separated from God, it's one and the same thing. When they leave this earth, they go to the place called hell. Now, there's a great debate in the church, uh, you know, overall, that there's there are some people that believe that Jesus did not die spiritually and that he did not go to hell. And the, the you know, I, I definitely don't agree with that, because if he did not die spiritually, you and I cannot be alive spiritually. If he did not go pay the price for us in hell then uh, you and I cannot enjoy the benefits of heaven. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, you don't have to turn there, just listen to it. It says that when Paul wrote, and he said, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended, into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus, when he died, went and paid the price for us in hell. But thank God, God didn't leave him there. You know, and on the third day when, when God spoke, and we won't turn there for the sake of time, but if you want to read what God said when he raised Jesus from the dead, it's found in Hebrews, the first chapter. It says that, again, when he brought the first begotten into the world, he said, and then it lists everything that he said, that God said when he spoke, when Jesus was raised from the dead. And so when the resurrection took place, Jesus was raised out of hell spiritually, okay? So he was the first man to ever be born again, okay? He was recreated. From, his, from the spiritual death that he experienced for you and for me, he was born again, and his spirit was made alive once again. And the Bible says that he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave from the devil. The Bible says in Colossians that he made a show of, of them openly by triumphing, triumphing them in it. So he won right there in the middle of hell and all the price that he was paying. And you got to imagine, you know, the demons and the devil probably thought that they had finally won, that they'd finally beat God, finally defeated him. 
but how wrong they were because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he defeated all of them. He came <laughs> out of hell. And the Bible says something very, very interesting that when he passed through or came out of hell, he passed through this upper region called paradise and he preached to the people that were there. Um, I tell you what, I, I told you, mark your place there in John 20. We're going to go there in just a second, but turn over with me to first Peter chapter three, please. First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three and look at verses 18 and 19. First Peter chapter three, verses 18 and 19. Now, Ephesians, and Paul wrote in Ephesians uh, 4 that we just read a moment ago, that he, he made the phrase, he said, he led, Jesus led captivity captive. So these people were being held there in that place called paradise, okay? And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, and look at verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, you know, somebody might say, well, no, pastor, that's talking about literal prison, but no, pr prison is not full of people's spirits, it's full of people, okay? So what we see here is that Jesus went somewhere and preached to the spirits that were being held captive. And of course, these are the Old Testament saints that died before Christ was raised from the dead. He went and preached the gospel to them. They were born again at that moment. And the Bible says he led them out of that place and they passed through temporarily, just for a moment, through the earth. Uh, I, I, again, forgive me, but go back over to Matthew 27, and let's look there and see when this happened. Matthew, the 27th chapter. And if you're reading through Matthew, and you, you kind of read this quick, you'll gloss right over this without really paying attention, uh, because as I tell you, pay attention to the details, okay? So in Matthew, the 27th chapter, and look at the 51st verse, Matthew 27, verse 51. It, well, verse 50 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Matthew's recording this as if it's the moment that Jesus dies. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the, quaked, and the rocks were split. Stop right there. That happened at the moment that Jesus died, okay? Now, why Matthew wrote it this way, I'm not really sure, but let's go on. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Matthew, in writing his gospel, ran this together. And if you're reading through it quick, you will think that when Jesus died, these Old Testament saints were raised from the dead, but that's not the case. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, 
he preached to all these Old Testament saints, and they were passing through on their way to heaven. Now, what's interesting about this, can you imagine, you know, and I've said this before, but can you imagine being a resident of Jerusalem and, uh, you know, you've been around for a while, you know, alive for, a, you know, 40, 50 years, whatever, and you've known relatives, you've had relatives that, that loved God, that died under the old covenant, and you saw them buried, you saw them put into the ground, and you're minding your own business, and Jesus is raised from the dead, and all of a sudden, Uncle Frank comes by to see you on his way through town, okay? Well, that's exactly what happened here. It says that the Old Testament saints uh, coming out of the graves, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, there's a lot that happened, and we won't get into it all tonight, just because for the sake of the time, um, that happened at the moment of Jesus' resurrection. But what this tells you is his resurrection was such a powerful event that it caused their bodies to, to come back to life as well, that they were raised from the dead and, and, and life came back into their bodies as well, okay? But what I want you to see is, is that all these Old Testament saints heard the gospel, Jesus preached to them, they were born again, and then he was able to lead them and prepare the way for them to be able to go into heaven. Now, just a couple of little verses, if you want to write this down, referring to paradise, the Bible teaches us that paradise was moved. It was moved out of this upper region of, of hell and was transported and relocated to, to a part, to become a part of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, Paul writing about himself, he said this, that there was a man, and he was writing it in the third person, but he said how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, Paul talked about he was transported spiritually into heaven, and the Lord had a conversation with him, and he heard words that he wasn't allowed to, to say what they were here in the earth. But notice he called that place paradise. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, the scripture says this, Jesus speaking, he said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So in heaven, there is a tree of life, just like in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. But notice what Jesus called it. He called the place where that tree is the paradise of God. So when those Old Testament saints were brought out of, of this lower paradise, this upper region of hell, Jesus preached to them, they got born again, and then they were taken up and translated and put into heaven where they belong. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand. Nobody gains access to heaven without being born again. That's why these Old Testament saints were held while where they were until Jesus could be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, paving the way for people to be able to be spiritually reborn, all right? Now, so what was going on with Jesus during this time? Well, 
we know that he was resurrected. He came walking out of the tomb and he had some interactions with people even on the day that he was resurrected. And so now go over to John, the 20th chapter. And I want to read about an encounter that Jesus had with Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Okay. And, and I want to point out something. I've, I've mentioned this in passing, but I want to point it out to you because it's important. So in John, the 20th chapter, in the 11th verse, uh, it says this, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping because she had seen that his body was gone. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. By the way, I don't, I don't fully understand this, but it's just something that the power of God can do. Notice that she did not recognize Jesus, although she had spent a lot of time with Jesus. She, uh, you know, not only when Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Jesus, we have record, we know at least one time he went back to their house and had dinner with them. And so, you know, she would have readily recognized him if, if he had allowed it to be so. And if you'll remember in, in the latter part of Luke's gospel, when the two disciples who were on the Emmaus road after Jesus was raised from the dead, remember they were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was about seven or eight miles. And, and the Bible says that Jesus caught up with them and walked with them on the road, but they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. He hid himself from them. So apparently the power of God is able to do that. So I just thought I'd mention that. So Again, she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Now, you know, that must have just really rocked her world. You know, to, to she's thinking this is a stranger. This is a gardener in the, the garden the, where the tomb was. And... Uh, he knows her name, and but the, I can just imagine, it doesn't say this, but I can just imagine the moment that he calls her name, her mind is flooded with recollection of hearing him call her and name her and say her name from all the time that he was with her. And that's, you know, how it, it rang a bell and she was able to recognize him. So notice what she said. She turned to him and said, Rabbi, which is to say teacher, but here's what I want to get to. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Now, again, another automatic reaction that we would have, human nature is, if, if you watched someone die, and all mm -hmm. of a sudden, three days later, they're raised from the dead, you're going to be very happy about it. And probably, if you're like me, you're going to want to hug and embrace them, okay? Just out of sure excitement and 
and joy and all of that. But notice what he says. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. The old King James says, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. All right. Now, Verse 18, Mary came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. But again, Jesus said this in verse 17, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Turn back just a few pages to John, I believe it's the 14th chapter. This just came up in my thinking. And uh, look at verse 1, John 14 and verse 1. Jesus said this, now this is the last, he's spending the last few hours with his disciples. They're in the upper room. They're getting ready to receive the Passover meal. And Jesus begins his time with them. Uh, he made some other comments to them, but he said this, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. Now, I don't want to pop your bubble. Okay. But, um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with believing this, okay? But the word mansions there does not mean big house. The word mansion there means dwelling place, a place for you to live, okay? So, and I'm not saying that that we don't have mansions when we get to heaven, all right? I'm not trying to kick a sacred cow here, but that, that word literally does not mean a humongous house, okay? Which we picture when we hear mansions. So that, that being said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, now, here's the key that I want us to see. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And then, of course, this leads to Thomas' question, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And this is Jesus' famous response, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, again, not to pop your spiritual bubble, but Jesus is not in heaven right now constructing a home for you, okay? <laughs> All right. I'll just leave that right there. But he did go to prepare a place for us. And what that means is, is that he, one of the assignments that he had in his ministry and, and one of the sole purposes of him coming to the earth, taking on a flesh body, living the life that he lived, ultimately going to the cross, suffering through his death, his burial, and then being resurrected on the third day, all of that laid the groundwork to what he is getting ready to do in our timeline right now. So going back to what he told Mary, he said, Mary, don't touch me. Don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. What in the world is he talking about? What does he have to ascend? Well, we know 40 days later, he did ascend to the father, but I'm going to show you that is not the first time he ascended to heaven. The scripture, and I'll prove it to you in just a second, but he ascended in, in, this, in the next few hours after this encounter with Mary, he ascended to heaven and accomplished some things. So 
what did he accomplish? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's let's um, let's talk about that. I, in order to discuss that, we have to lay the groundwork and say this: when Adam sinned way back in the garden, several thousand years before Jesus ever went to the cross, when Adam sinned in the garden, his sin made it all the way to heaven. It affected heaven. Okay. In Exodus, the 25th chapter, just make a note of this verse. In the 40th verse, Exodus 25 and verse 40, the Lord in, in instructing Moses in building the tabernacle, he made a statement to Moses and he said this, and see to it that you make the tabernacle according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. What does that mean? That that when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle and all the parts and pieces and everything that was to take place in the tabernacle, as we've talked about the previous weeks in the blood covenant, that it was after a pattern that had already been laid out in heaven. In other words, the model that Moses saw was not the only model that existed. Okay. So the the, the principle of the tabernacle was something that already existed in heaven. Now, that being said, what that means is, you remember when we talked about the, the priestly duties and all the sacrifices that they had to offer, and we walked through all of the, the way that they would offer those sacrifices and how the, the blood was captured by the high priest, and the high priest would go into the holy place, and he would take the blood of the atonement and he would sprinkle the articles in the tabernacle with the blood in order to purify them. But remember when I said to you that this was done every year, and the reason for that was because it was, it was to cover the people's sin for that year. And so the high priest had to repeat this over and over and over again every year to cover the people's sin. But this was a pattern. It was, it was not the real thing, okay? Now go over with me to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, please. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And I want to show you when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what did he mean? What did he mean? So let's look at Hebrews. I want to read uh, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 9, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. So it says this, so Christ, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, by the way. It says, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all and secured our redemption forever. Okay, so this scripture clearly says that Jesus took his blood into the heavenly holy of holies and secured our redemption 
forever. Now drop down to verse 24. Verse 24, same chapter. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven, referring to the old tabernacle. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If In verse 26, if that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's my point. Jesus, in this period, after he had encountered Mary, and he told her, don't cling to me, the reason he said that was he was prepared as our great high priest to carry his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies. Now, if you'll remember, we talk, talked about this briefly, but if the Old Testament high priest had touched anybody or done anything out of the normal procedure, he would have been declared unclean and disqualified from being able to perform his duties. And you remember we said he would have had to go through the whole purification process again. Well, Jesus at this point in his ministry is pure, he's qualified, and he is now able to fulfill part of his high priestly duty by carrying his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies, sprinkle his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven, and secure our redemption for us. And he did all of this in that window of time uh, between the time he saw Mary and then a few hours later, uh, and we'll see here in just a moment where he encountered some of the other disciples, okay? So here's what had happened in this window of time. Jesus was raised from the dead and Satan had been conquered. The claims of justice had been met. Legally, mankind was redeemed. Humanity, the price had been paid for humanity. So God can now, on legal grounds, give eternal life to every human being that will receive it. Jesus had become the Savior, dealt with man's sin, and settled it once and for all, the Scripture says. And his man was at last ransomed, and his debt was paid. So all of that transpired in that window of time. Now go back with me to John's gospel, please, the 20th chapter. I'm going somewhere with all of this. Keep tracking with me. John, the 20th chapter. So we we left off when Jesus had um, 
the conversation with Mary in verse 17, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and, and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So in that time, Mary ran, she went and told the disciples. Okay. And then, uh, we see in verse 19, that same day at evening. Now he had the encounter with Mary in the morning. Remember she went early in the morning. So in verse 19, it says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace be still. Okay. So all the disciples saw him or are almost all of them. When he said this, look at what he said. Verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. See, this is when the disciples were born again. Jesus appeared to them. Uh, now, not all of them, because all of them were present at this time. Okay. So drop down to verse 24. Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them in this first appearance that Jesus came. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, and after verse 26, after eight days, so Jesus appears to his disciples the night of the day of the resurrection. He does some other stuff. And then on eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Now, <laughs> I, I got to make this comment. Jesus was able to pass through shut doors. Now, mm -hmm. it wasn't because he was like Casper the Friendly Ghost, okay? It was because he was in his glorified body. His glorified body is more solid than natural things are in this natural world. In other words, um, material things do not hinder him from being able to move around. Little, little side note. When you get your glorified body, when uh, Jesus returns, the same thing will be true for you, okay? Just a little side note, that's free. That won't cost you anything. All right, so uh, he appears and he says, peace to you. Verse 27, then he turns immediately to Thomas. Now, remember, he wasn't present when Thomas said what he said, but the Holy Ghost revealed to him what Thomas said, and he told Thomas, he said, reach your finger here look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what's the difference between this encounter and Mary's encounter? Well, Jesus allowed the disciples to touch him. He allowed the disciples to 
Matter of fact, he encouraged Thomas. He said, Thomas, take your finger, put it in the nail print in my hand. Take your hand, thrust it into the wound in my side. Uh, you know, and so he allowed the disciples to touch him at this point. Why? Because his high priestly duties had all been fulfilled at that moment as far as securing our redemption. Okay. Now, this leads up to, and you know, fast forward 40 days to the first chapter of Acts. We're not going to turn there, but you know, Jesus in 40 days, he ascended to heaven. So in the first chapter of Acts, we, we, we see how he was caught up into heaven. And so the question comes to bear, and this is why I want to tie this into our study on the covenant. What has Jesus been up to since the resurrection? What's he been doing? You know, of course, to us in, in our earth time, it's been 2000 years. Of course, in eternity, there is no time. But here's what I want us to, to take a look at for this week and next week is what has Jesus been doing since he ascended to heaven? Did he just go up there and he's taking a break? I mean, he did a lot. He, he did a lot of work. I mean, you know, my goodness, he was crucified. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. That, that'd take a lot out of everybody. So, you know, did he go up so he can just take a break for a while and then he's going to come back and do some stuff? No, not at all. Matter of fact, his resurrection was not the end of the ministry. It was actually the beginning of a new phase of ministry for Jesus. Okay. Easter, what we know as Easter, was, was a commencement exercise. It was a, a graduation. It was a beginning for Jesus. You know, if you uh, think about it, when we graduated from high school or college, you know, it was, for me, I remember my high school graduation. No, it was a sad time, but it was also a time of new beginnings. It was a time for, because it was a commencement. You were beginning something new. You were beginning a new chapter. Well, when Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven, it began a new chapter in his ministry. It began a new phase of what he was going to be doing. Some think that Jesus ascended to heaven and because of what the verses say, and we'll look at them in just a second, but that he simply went up there and sat down and he's been sitting there ever since waiting for the father to lean over and tell him it's time for the rapture to take place. And that's not what Jesus has been up to. Okay. All right. So we're going to look at, and here's what we're going to study for the balance of our time tonight and next week, the four ministries that Jesus has been doing since he was since he was ascended to heaven number 1 he is our mediator mediator number 2 he is our advocate number 3 he is our heavenly intercessor And number four, he is our great high priest. So he is our mediator. He's our advocate. He's our heavenly intercessor. And he is our great high priest. 
Now, on top of all that, and we're not going to talk about this in this study, but he's also the Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. So he, uh, you know, forgive me for saying it this way, but he leads and manages everything that takes place in the body of Christ. All right. So big responsibility there as well. But let's look at number one, Jesus, our mediator. So turn with me to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, please. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews 12, verse 1. And this is where we kind of get the, the maybe misconception a little bit. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, and so, you know, what some have done is they've taken this one verse and thought this was what Jesus, his occupation is now sitting at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. Now, um, I personally believe this. Now, you, I can't necessarily prove it to you from the scriptures, but you can't disprove it either. And that is this, I believe in heaven, there are three thrones. In the throne room of God, I believe there are three thrones. Number one, we have the, the throne of God the Father. Number two, Jesus has a throne because the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of God. So at God's right hand is Jesus' throne. And then I believe there's a third throne. Anybody want to guess who's that throne is? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. That's right. But he's not there. Where is he? In us. He's in the earth. Yeah. He's in the earth and in us, but he's not present in, well, he is, but he's not solely dwelling in heaven. Okay. So now when, I, when it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father, it doesn't literally mean he sits there all the time. That is a place of authority and dominion, okay? So just as, you know, if you were to go over to England right now, somewhere in, in uh, and I don't know how all that works, but somewhere in, either in Buckingham Palace or someplace, King Charles has a throne, and that is his throne. Nobody else sits in that throne. That throne belongs to him. And whether he is physically seated in that throne or not, it still represents what he does, who he is, his, the sovereignty that he has, the dominion and authority that he has as a royal in the British uh, monarchy, okay? So, and obviously we know King Charles does not get up in the morning, go shower, shave and all that, and then go sit in his throne all day long, okay? No, he's out and about, he's doing things, but that throne still represents who he is and what he does. So Jesus is not literally sitting 
physically in his throne, but that throne is there representing his place of authority and dominion. Okay, now go over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. No, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now I'm going to go with this. I'm only on page five of nine tonight, so I obviously may not make it through. So if I have to quit, y'all don't get mad at me, all right? First Timothy chapter two and verse five. First Timothy two, five says this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So this scripture is very plain. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, I want to point out a couple things to you. Notice it does not say that, that there is one God and one mediator between God and believers. It says there's one mediator between God and men. So of the four ministries that I gave you, Jesus, the mediator, is who he is to all humanity. Okay? He is the mediator between God and all human beings. In other words, you remember he said nobody gets, gets to the Father. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He said that while he was here alive on the earth. But what I want us to see is that there is one representative representing all humanity before God, and that is Jesus Christ. I love what the Good News Bible says. It says this, for there is one God, and there is one who brings God and human beings together, the man Christ Jesus. You know, if you think about what is a mediator, you know, if I if I think about labor disputes. You know, we hear about that occasionally in the news where a big union will uh, have a dispute, a contract dispute with a, an employer. And so they'll come together and, and very often they'll bring in a mediator, a third party that can bring the two parties together and negotiate some type of solution. Well, Jesus became the mediator to represent God to man and man to God. Now, what's cool about this is Jesus is the only one that's qualified to do that. And how is that? Because Jesus is the only one that is 100% God and 100% man. So he represents both parties equally. All right? So Jesus became God-made flesh, and so he was the only one and this is so cool. This is what's so awesome about the love of God is that God loved us so much. And, you know, the scripture says this, but God loved us so much that he became one of us so he could represent God to us and then in turn us to God. And that's awesome. Okay. So Jesus is the only one that could do that himself. So he came to earth to represent God to us. You know, if you think about it, that's what his earthly ministry was all about, was to minister for three and a half years 
and to demonstrate and show people what the heart of God was really all about. People had gotten so far off course with religion and trying to please God and works and so forth and so on, that it took the Lord Jesus coming and living and ministering for three and a half years to show people what God's heart is really all about. And of course, you know, none of, or a lot of the people didn't receive it, but now that he is uh, gone to heaven, his job isn't to represent God to us anymore. His job is to represent humanity to God. Now, how does he do that? Through the price that he paid, through the sacrifice that he made. You know, the Bible says that the blood uh, speaks, his blood speaks. And what does it say? It says that the price has been paid, that the, the full justification for humanity has been bought and paid for through and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just make a note of this verse. Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, uh, Job said this, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who, who may lay his hand on both of us. In other words, a mediator brings both of those parties together. Okay, So Jesus is the mediator for all mankind. He is the one the only one that could and does bridge the gap between God and man. That's why, you know, it's sad to hear people say, well, you know, there's more than one way to God. You know, there's many ways to get to heaven. Nope, wrong. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. He is the only way that you're going to have a relationship with the Father. He's the only way that you're going to gain access to an eternity in heaven is through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, we've been using this verse. Go over to Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, now this verse will maybe make a little bit more sense to you, but we've been talking about this verse and using it as the foundation for this particular series, talking about the better covenant, okay? Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7. Hebrews 8, 6 says, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Now, so it says now he's obtained this ministry. So Jesus could not fulfill this ministry up until now or until after his resurrection. So now he has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Can I say it to you this way? It would be as though, you know, in that illustration that I gave you a moment ago, the labor dispute between union and employer, and they're, you know, they're both at odds. They're not going to be able to come into an agreement. And all of a sudden, a mediator is sent in who is able to bring both parties together. The picture that this verse states is this, is that Jesus brought a better covenant, a better contract to the table that was able to satisfy the need for all parties involved and then brought us into it so we could be partakers of that covenant and of that contract. And that contract is established on better promises than even what was in the old contract. 
And that's absolutely awesome. Go over to chapter 12 there in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 24. This is a verse I made reference to just a moment ago, Hebrews 12, 24. It says this to, well, let me read verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You've been registered in heaven. Did you know that? Amen. Who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that spe speaks better things than that of Abel. So the blood of Jesus talks all the time. Now, not literally, but figuratively, it speaks and it declares all the time the price has been paid. The price has been paid. So every time you and I, even as believers, we need what that blood accomplished for us. Now, if we sin, we miss it. And we go to God and we confess our sins. The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Why can't he do that? Because the blood speaks. The blood is declaring that the price was paid for that sin. The price was paid for your past sin. The price was paid for your future sins, sins that you haven't even committed. The price has been paid. And I like to say it this way. You know, there's a saying that says that God or, or that people look at other people through rose-colored glasses. Well, I like to say it this way. God sees us through blood-covered glasses. He sees us only through the blood. He doesn't see us in in our sin. He doesn't see us in our shortcomings. He doesn't see us in our failures. He only sees us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, I want to begin this, and then uh, I'm, I'm almost out of time. But the second ministry, let's talk about this second ministry that Jesus is involved in, and that is he is our advocate. Now, I want to say this to you, and if in your notes where you listed those four, Jesus the mediator, okay, Jesus the advocate, Jesus the intercessor, and the great high priest, where you've listed those four, beside number one, put parentheses, for sinners, people that don't know Jesus. He is the mediator. He's the one that brings the two parties together. But the last three, the advocate, the intercessor, and the high priest are ministries that he ministers for the believer. So the mediator is the first step in the process. In other words, it's, the, it's where you, he brings you and God together. But the last three are things that we participate in or can receive, rather, as believers and walk in. Okay? So let's let's talk about for just a moment Jesus our advocate. Now let me go ahead and let me tell you what an advocate is and I'll repeat this a couple of times. If you're familiar with legal terms at all, you've probably heard this phrase, but an advocate. This is one this is uh right from the dictionary. One who speaks in support or defense of a person. 
one who speaks, and this definition goes on to say, or writes, one who speaks or writes in support or defense of a person. It also means a person who pleads for or in behalf of another person. And I'll repeat all this, but it also means counsel for the defense. Counsel for the defense. Legal counsel, like your attorney. Okay? So let me say it all again. One who speaks or writes in support or defense of a person, a person who pleads for or in behalf of another person, or counsel for the defense. One who speaks or writes in support or defense of a person, a person who pleads for or in behalf of another person, or counsel for the defense. Now, go over with me to 1 John chapter 2, please. 1 John chapter 2. And I want to read you verse 1. Now, you know, if you've, if you've read 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 1, you know, I just quoted verse 9 to you. If we sin, you know, that you can confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you. So verse, or chapter 2, rather, verse 1 says this, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, now stop right there. Who's he writing to? The church. Yeah, because he says my little children. So he he's not going to refer to sinners that way. He's going to refer to believers, people he's writing this letter to. So my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, so if he's talking to Christians, let's let's fill that in here. So if a Christian sins, notice what he says. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So what I want you to see is, and, and we're going to have to stop right here, but what I want you to see is this, that when we sin, we have, I guess I could say this, we have a public defender that's been assigned to us. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the counsel for the defense. Now, not only is he the counsel for the defense, he stepped up ahead of time and said, you know what, no matter what their offense is, what, whatever they did to break the law, I will cover the cost. If it requires prison time, I've gone to prison for them. If it requires, you know, whatever the penalty is for sin, I have paid the price. So what that means is, is the counsel, your defense attorney is not only representing you in defense, he's also 
paid the full price for your penalty, no matter what that penalty is. Okay. Now, the reason that this is important, and this is, I'm going to make this statement and then we'll pick up here and I'll define it next week. When we sin, and we, we all do, okay, not intentionally, and, and the word is working in us to keep us, like, like John said here, so that we may not sin. We're sinning less and less and less. We should, okay? But what I want you to know is, is that if you do sin, there is somebody who comes before God to accuse you. His name is Satan. And the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And what he does is he makes note, maybe not literally, but you'll get the picture. He makes note of what you do that's wrong. And he is the prosecuting attorney. And he brings it before the judge and, and says, they have done this, 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 and this. Okay? Now, where he messes up, is that he doesn't understand something. This trial has already been fixed. All right, let me explain why. The judge is your heavenly father. Your defense attorney is your elder brother spiritually who paid the price for you. So the accuser shows up. He's already lost before he gets started real good. Okay, because your advocate stands up and makes the case that the price has already been paid and and that you are legally forgiven and there is no case against you. All right. So unfortunately, I got to stop right there. And we'll pick up right here next week. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.